Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we'll be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We will be sharing real-life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. In today's episode, we welcome a guest who's on the forefront of the digital transformation that is shaping the workplaces and leadership teams of today. Leading a company that lives at the cutting edge of technology with a long-standing reputation for being a great place to work, today's guest offers wisdom from this and past experiences at organizations such as InfoGroup and Thomson Reuters. Please welcome the co-author of the book Data Leverage and the Chief Data Officer of Yext, Christian Ward. Well, Christian, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for being on Take Command of Dale Carnegie Podcast. Thank you, Joe. Great to be here. Very much appreciate it. Thank you. So we've got a lot to talk about. You are at the forefront of the digital revolution, if you will, and certainly we'll talk about what that means. It means a lot of different things to different people. You're an Executive Vice President and Chief Data Officer at Yext. Talk a little bit about your journey, Christian, about kind of, you know, where you started and what are some of the key milestones along your life that have led you to this senior position you have today? Absolutely. Well, from a journey perspective, I am one of those fortunate people that continues to do the exact thing I enjoyed learning about in college, which sounds a little strange. Chief data officer wasn't even a role back then. It's really only the last maybe five or 10 years people have decided they need one of these. I studied English and ended up with a degree in finance and took a a sprinkling of computer programming classes, which is very sort of odd in terms of a path. But I learned really early on in my life that I was passionate about storytelling. And as I started getting more into computers and computer science growing up, I also recognized that there was going to be this concept of data and information embedded inside of stories, not necessarily just from a journalistic perspective, but really just in a way of how do we help understand the world around us and how do we use that to convey information in a meaningful way? And so I started my career as a financial analyst sleeping under my desk. Anyone listening to this that is in the investment banking program at a major bank, I hear you and I see you. <laughs> but that process introduced me to how the world of finance worked. I very quickly moved up and out of that into more of a sales trading role. And then from there, I started my first company when I was 23, continued to sell that to public companies and then started a few more companies. But everything I have done has really been around helping structure data and information at scale so that we can get more valuable use out of it. And I literally continue to do that today in my role at Yext. So could you talk about what that means? I know there's a lot of things that you're saying that people may or may not understand. One thing you talked about was storytelling, you know, really leveraging data and information, and then also structuring data at scale. What did you mean by those things? For you and I and many listening, when we grew up, we might watch the weather on WPIX, you know, in New York and Channel 11, and you'd see, and you'd have to wait for the weather. And now, you know, when I talk to my kids, that's unfathomable. Why would you wait? What started to happen was 
we took information and started storing it in ways, or we're thinking about storing it in ways that it could be leveraged in sort of asynchronous fashion. So at different times or times different for you and me. And so what starts to happen when you think about something like the weather is once you start structuring it, like what's the weather by zip code for the next five days, for the previous five days, what are the different ways that we talk about temperature? That's a very sort of simple data set, but it's an amazing data set once you free it up to combine it with other stories. For example, what many people may not realize is you buy more things when it's been sunny out for two or three days in a row because it has a direct effect on your psyche. And marketers learned this years ago, but it wasn't until you could structure the weather data and then structure the zip codes of all your stores and all your products and your shipments and merge those two into a Venn diagram that allowed you to say, hey, if it's been raining for five days straight, maybe send out those roof repair emails. So there was this process and it's really accelerated over the last several years by which every platform or business is understanding that if they can structure the data about or around their business, they can more appropriately use it to convey what they're good at or how they can help a customer. And in the end, they're all just stories. It's just that the data really helps you know when to tell the story and what story to tell. Well, that is really illuminating, especially the way that you just explained it. And going back, you mentioned that all of the companies really, you started these businesses and they were all around data and this use of data and so forth. Talk a little bit about some of the companies that you'd started and also about the entrepreneurial journey. I mean, were you afraid to start the business? Was it a straight line? You were just successful or did you have some challenges along the way? Definitely there were the challenges. I started my first company with my best friend from college, who is now a professor at Elon, his name's Sean McMahon, still one of my best friends in the world. And we started realistically just the two of us and my then girlfriend, now wife of 20 years. <laughs> and we would go to work at UPS at night, loading the vans. So we had some money for food and she paid the rent. And it was definitely the, we came from nothing sort of startup. At the same time, it was in the area of finance. We were looking to build an independent research network. So at the time, this was around 1999, if I asked you, Joe, to go to Bloomberg and look up all the sell-rated stocks on Wall Street, where the average was a sell, there were 6,000 stocks that were listed on the Bloomberg for the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. Out of 6,000 stocks, Joe, in 1999, how many of them do you think had a sell rating on them? 6,000 stocks in 1999. Well, it's 99. The economy was looking pretty good at that time. So probably not too many. Six. There were six stocks. The rest of them were buy ratings. And what we uncovered was there was this natural inherent bias where investment banking had influence. And this became a very major scandal on Wall Street of biased ratings. It took years for it to happen. But we were so naive that it seemed like a great idea at the time. And we started building up a network to take information from independent analysts who had never had no investment banking and merge it into a platform. So I would say we learned a lot of things through that entire process. Some of the things that we learned were number one, it actually takes a little naivety to have a great entrepreneurial approach to look at something and say, this doesn't seem right, or there's an opportunity here. And then the other side of it was this learning through the process of just how there might be nothing wrong with your idea or it just may not be the right time. I think we learned timing in the first few businesses more than anything else, which is you can absolutely be out there with the right idea, but how you time that with the rest of the market's understanding can really make or break your process. 
The other company that I founded that I absolutely loved was a lot of fun. We sold it to a media company was we figured out a way in the 2000s to splice into all the closed captioning feeds on every television station in real time. And then we would run that through a machine learning to understand every time someone spoke about a company or a product. So in real time, I could tell options traders, hey, Jim Cramer is jumping up and down and talking about this stock more than ever before. Because what we learned is in trading, if you knew that a lot of news was accelerating, especially on television about a company, you could build an entire option strategy or a media strategy around that. It didn't necessarily matter if the news was positive or negative. It was a volatility indicator. And so again, here's data that was completely out there. It was actually paid for and mandated by the government in closed caption feeds. And yet no one had tried to ever structure the data. So you could then tie it to a different story, which is when do you invest and when do you get out? Because Realistically, if the train's moving, you want to be on the train or off the train. You just don't want to stand in front of the train. So that was another business model, which again, kind of very similar, bringing structure to data sets so that it can be intermingled or leveraged with other Venn diagram components. So Christian, just to take a step back, because often our listeners are interested in starting a business. They would love to do what you did. And one of the questions is around the idea. How did you start? I mean, did you just see these things? You saw it and you went for it or did you research it? How'd you come up with these ideas? One of the best ideas or the best way you can find ideas is by going to work for either large corporations or other businesses. Because one of the beautiful things about how you may see it as a newcomer or an outsider is that you're going to see it in a slightly different way than people that have been doing it for 10 to 15 years in a particular set fashion. This is the way I think so many great engineers step into a problem is they look at it almost from a scientific perspective and say, how would I do this differently? And they're willing to question everything because they have no vested political, emotional, or otherwise sort of blockage in terms of how to think about the problem. So in the case of the first business, I was an investment banking analyst, and there I was at you know, 21 nothing years old out of college. I'm in a meeting where the CEO of a company and our investment bankers and our research team are all talking about how they'll have a strong buy rating once they IPO and everything. And I'm this kid sitting there going, I haven't even done the math yet. How do we know we're going to like this company? But I was so naive that that's just kind of how it all worked. And so I think sometimes those fresh eyes of coming up with the idea often comes by being closely tangent to the actual industry or the business. Certainly there are people that have lightning strike about great ideas, but oftentimes I think it's so much more the innovation around the stagnant or the questionable that breeds some of the best ideas and the best ways to pursue them. Well, those are some good guidelines, I think, for people. But really what I'm taking away from this is someone who wants to start a business, part of it is even to look with fresh eyes What's happening around you? Where are those needs? And it might not be something you come up with right away, but it sounds like a catalyst was being in that meeting or meetings like that and so forth. And all of a sudden you're connecting the dots and it was an aha. You've done multiple startups on your way to your current position. Anything you learned along the way? Because I'm assuming that you got better and better each time you started something. Any key insights or learnings that you had from that experience as you progressed through your career? Too many to name, but I'll offer a couple of things, which is number one, Active listening is not sitting in the room. Active listening is one of the best things I think anyone can understand or really learn about themselves, which is 
when you're meeting with other people, trying to understand from their perspective and trying to understand what it is that they're saying and not saying as you're thinking about these ideas. Also, that same sort of concept comes when you're building your team to build something. Working with people that have very different skill sets than yours, or perhaps complement your skill set, but also recognizing as your teams get bigger, as you're building, given personality types, not many people are comfortable speaking up as loudly as others. And it's real critical to try and find or create environments whereby all sort of varying opinions or perspectives can be understood. In my career, most of improving or growing tended to come from the fact that we were surrounding ourselves with people that had opinions, would share them, but were coming at it from very different perspectives, whether it's scientific or emotional or directly in the market or industry expertise, and trying to listen very actively to them. It's very easy as an entrepreneur to fall into a sense of confidence about what you're actually competent about but you then miss everything else going on in the room around you because you're laser focused on convincing people about what the actual business is going to be. If I learned something along the way, I would say I was way too confident early on and didn't listen enough to what would make me more competent very early on. And I think that could have helped a lot more, especially on my own journey. It's interesting that that confidence, especially for the entrepreneur, can be, it's the tragic flaw, so to speak, that confidence is a great thing. It can get an entire business off the ground. And if we don't have that humility that you just talked about, that authentic desire to listen and learn from other people, it can also doom the business. It sounds like you learned a lot just by setting yourself aside and listening to what other people had to say. I think at this stage, I would say I've learned that now, I'd say 20 years in the making. It's one of those that I actually don't think we ever stop. I think the balance between humility and decision-making are where you really learn your leadership style. The issue that most people face is, yes, you're supposed to lead and you're trying to get a business off the ground. You're leading both your employees and your team, but you're also leading the market typically to something that's new or innovative. Anytime you try and do that, you can get off balance real quickly in terms of your own humility levels. Those are the elements that I think perhaps people can learn it early on. It certainly took me very long and I'm still learning literally every day how to check that and to take a step back. But that is one of the absolute best skills you can have as an entrepreneur. Listen to those around you, be extremely humble in terms of what you know and what you don't know, and then refactor that as fast as you can to bring that information into your next decision. Sounds like that's something that's been a valuable insight for you. Tell us about Yext, what the company does today, what your role is at the company, and how you're bringing some of those leadership qualities to your role now. Sure. So Yext is the AI search company. And what that means is we bring natural language search to all different facets of the search industry. So things like marketing search when you're on someone's website or you're looking for them in Google, support search when you have questions, e-commerce search, workplace search, all these different elements of search. And I'm passionate about search because fundamentally the way search works best is if you have structured data, unstructured data, semi-structured data, all these different types of information out there are part of the journey of sharing knowledge and empowering people to really learn and to engage. Because quite frankly, almost every customer journey starts with a question where you're like, 
I wonder what that car is like, or I wonder if this is a good place to eat or anything. We ask questions. We literally learn that before we know how to read and write. We're constantly peppering our parents with questions. So Yext is designed to help businesses in the enterprise reveal their knowledge through search. Now, my role at Yext as chief data officer is a little different for me. I've been chief data officer at other companies before. And generally, your role as CDO is to help identify, structure, and value your internal data assets so that you can commercialize them or build partnerships around them. At Yext, my role is actually to be in market with our teams, working with our customers to help them build their knowledge graphs. I'm saying knowledge graph, but basically the way to think about that is it's all the different types of knowledge or entities. So it might be your people, your locations, your products, your services. Those are different entities in a relational graph. And so I work in market and it's a blast because I might be talking to someone like the WHO in the morning who we power their search experience, but I could be talking to the PGATour.com in the afternoon. And they all have vastly different goals from you know healthcare to finance, to NGOs, to government. But in the end, how they leverage data and their desire to answer every question of people that visit or engage with their business, it's the same. So it really is a very fun job. I literally play with different colored Lego blocks of data all day long. You're doing what you really set out to do. You're passionate about data. You're thinking about data, how to construct data, what you can learn from data. And ultimately, search is the way that all of us are accessing and utilizing data every single day. Absolutely. I mean, look, 93% of people start their journey with search. I mean, that's even if you know the URL or you know where you want to go. There was a great study by Harvard Business Review a few years ago. It was like a GDP question because most of these technologies we don't pay for. There's ads revenue. They went to 80,000 people and said, hey, if you had to forego social media, how much will we have to pay you to forego it? And people are like, ah, you know, like, I don't know, 50 bucks, 40 bucks a month, $500 a year. When they went to five different technologies, they asked them that same question. The last category was, if you couldn't search, how much will we have to pay you? The average across 80,000 people was $17,000 a year. There's literally no world today where we can operate in many cases without search. Even if we're talking about search on a map to get you somewhere or search in your car or searching in your email, that technology has been so transformative to the world and so opening up for knowledge in general. It's just an absolutely wonderful space to be in. I think from a human perspective, if I asked half the people that I work with on a daily basis to do their job without search, they'd be in a fetal position under their desk. It's that hard to function without it. So I think it's a great human expansion of knowledge, but I also think it's just beginning in terms of all the things we can do with it. Well, one of the things that Yex talks about is that search hadn't changed fundamentally since 1999, but your approach is different. What is different about Yext and the way that you are driving search versus other things in the marketplace? Well, a great example would be if you go to a lot of different sites, say the vast majority of sort of business sites, and you were to type in a question, generally what happens is it looks for keywords. So if I wrote a paper about vaccinations, but I didn't talk about inoculation, only vaccination, and someone types in the word inoculation, the reality is classic search doesn't work because it's just looking for that word through a bunch of documents and returning documents where there's a high level of saturation of that word. That's what we call keyword search. 
Now, keyword search, don't get me wrong, again, kind of amazing for what it is. It goes back into the, I want to say the 1950s when it was initially thought of and built out as this structure called TFIDF. 1999 was kind of when everybody started adding that to their systems. It hasn't evolved since then. In fact, Google's really the only one that has evolved. Around 2012, Google started showing search results from their knowledge graph. And we all started hearing more and more about their knowledge graph. That's when you type in how tall is Mount Everest and you just get the answer back and not blue links where the words Mount Everest are on it. That changed the game for many people. And for most science or let's say computational linguistic studies where people are analyzing language and how to deal with language, knowledge graphs are why your Alexa can talk to you. You can talk to your Siri, you can talk to your car. That understanding of not words, but relationships, ideas, thoughts, that has been this massive boom where the research and the capabilities are skyrocketing. Let me back up. I'll give you an example. My two daughters, I have two daughters are now teenagers, but when they were like seven and five, they walked into our kitchen one day and we had a Google machine set up there and they said, okay, Google, George Washington. And then they're like, that's not it. Okay, Google, George Washington, cherry tree. That's not it. Okay, George Washington Cherry Tree comic strip. And I stopped them. I'm like, what are you two doing? And they're like, well, we need a picture for a cover for a book report. And I'm laughing because they're in kindergarten. They had already learned how to speak keyword. It was so disturbing that they had learned that you can't converse with the machine. Now, fast forward, we have a much younger third child, my son. He comes bounding down the stairs every day and says something like, Alexa, turn on Guardians of the Galaxy in the basement and the lights, and it works. He is never going to speak keyword. It's over. So the whole future for us is how do we help build knowledge graphs, which enable natural language understanding, where the relationship is just as important between the doctor, the procedure, the insurance, and where the hospital is. That's the way humans see the world, and we need to rethink that entire structure so that natural language works. Well, it'll be exciting to see where things go. One of the things that strikes me is that you personally, your company are very much at the forefront of innovation, of creativity. And that can't happen in isolation. It happens in teams. It happens in the culture that really brings that about. How would you say that you're helping foster creativity and innovation at Yext? What are some of the strategies? So Yext was a very unique business for me when I joined. I want to say it was only about 180 people when I got there. And it's grown to about 1,500. It's really enjoyed a nice growth trajectory. But even back then, the first meeting I had in my onboarding, they had everyone sit and take a Myers-Briggs exam. You're in an onboarding class. And I had never done this before, despite sort of Wall Street background. And it was one where they then took the next several days explaining how all of us see the world very differently. And I was familiar. I'd actually read the book by Catherine Myers-Briggs. I understood the whole point of gifts differing. It was more just watching how they related it to the team I recognize this is something very different. In fact, when they're done with their process, you get a Star Wars sticker or Harry Potter, depending on your generation or your interest, as to what your Myers-Briggs is. And we put them all on the front of our laptops. And when you open your laptop, that's what people see. And what it does is it fosters this incredible level of empathy towards each other that it really enables that active listening I was talking about, where even though some people may say something or approach something creatively or differently or almost antagonistically or quietly, there's so many different ways that all of us see and experience this world that what I've found is it's an incredibly creative place because literally everyone not only knows 
that they have the opportunity to share and to experience, but also our shared experiences allow us to then look across the table and know without even knowing the person's name, how they probably or might be perceiving it vastly different than we are. It continues to this day. It's part of the culture, but it fosters this great acceptance of creativity, but also this respect that is critical to a properly led team. What are some of the other ways that leadership supports that, that they encourage that, that they help people have this psychological safety and the kind of belonging that you're talking about? I'm over the moon with my compatriots here in terms of who the leaders are at Yext. I think realistically, most of them are very experienced, but they joined a company that was particularly trying to solve a very difficult problem. And in doing that, we've invited you know some of the sharpest minds, I think, in the industry or in the world. And that opens up this process where you all know everyone in the room deserves to be there. But at the same time, that doesn't necessarily foster it. How do you really foster it? And what we've found is that oftentimes when our leadership is in meetings or engaging, especially during the pandemic, one of the things that people want, especially as they're coming up through a business, is not just FaceTime, but engagement time with leadership. And so our CEO adopted something many years ago, which is his five-minute meetings that are available to absolutely everybody at the company, where anyone can come in and they rapid fire discuss something with him. I know other leaders do that similarly. And then during the pandemic, I thought it was really interesting. We put together as leaders a common calendar where we knew every meeting that had a certain number of people on it in every department. And we would drop in to say hi and listen and engage with them because what we're all missing is that shared experience of passing someone in the hallway and saying, hey, do you have a second? And that opened up that opportunity for more of those to happen during this time, which incidentally, I think will really matter as we move into the next phase of reopening and how people maybe want a little more flexibility because real leadership in many cases is not just pointing in the direction where we're headed, but it's also recognizing the people that are getting us there and having those one-to-one serendipitous conversations, which quite frankly, it's very hard to do over Zoom. Like nobody's that charming in a two by two inch square on your screen, but it's definitely one of those things that if you make the time for it, you can really bring some of that connectedness. And I think that the leadership at Yext has always been available as often as possible to their teams. People need to know that. People know that really don't care what you know until we know that you care. And that leadership demonstrating that caring is certainly an important attribute, something we talk about in Dale Carnegie, try to see things from the other person's point of view and demonstrate honest and sincere appreciation. I'm curious a little bit more about the five-minute meeting. How does that work? What's happening in those five-minute meetings? You know, I think that's actually kind of the beauty of it. It's really designed, yes, you're going to have five minutes with your CEO. You should have an idea of what you want to speak about. But also, many people are just trying to connect. There was a great book about New York Times bestseller list called The Bestseller Code. And why do some books count and other books don't? And how do they reach the New York Times bestseller? And they did a complete mathematical statistical analysis. It's a phenomenal book. At its core, what it found is that the most important stories are the ones about human connection. Harry Potter isn't about witchcraft. It's about the connection of those three kids. And so while five minutes only is the beginning, it's meant to say, can I come in and talk about something that's important to me? That's how it starts. And they roll through. And it's one of those things with this many employees, what you're offering is two things. I'm open to talking to you at any time. And while this is the opening discussion, I want you to know that this is the opening discussion and that we will have more. And at many companies, and I certainly understand size, it gets really difficult to do this. 
But I will say, I think it has an amazing impact, even on the people that don't take advantage of it, to know that it's there and it's open as a way to start a dialogue. It's not necessarily because it will be the most impressive five minutes of your life. It's much more, how do we open a dialogue and get to know who you are a little bit more on that human connection? And then hopefully something spawns from that because it's a really engaging and interesting opportunity. Excellent. Sounds like a really great way to help people feel valued and to connect with them. And like you said, open up the discussion. As a leader and looking at where you need to move the organization, what are some of the qualities you're looking for in your team members to demonstrate? Are there a couple of different attributes that are the most important ones to you in order to help move the organization? When we talk about leadership, I would say leadership to me is being directionally accurate in your decision-making for the benefit of others. And when I think about leadership for individuals, whether they are actually titled leaders or they are just on the team, the whole point has to be, what are we doing and what direction are we moving? And we're never always right. There's too much information. There's too much data. You can't analyze all of it. You have to find directional accuracy as to what would you like to, what direction are we headed? And also it's for the benefit of others. And that might mean that the right decision is letting someone else decide. So when we think about that process or how leaders do that, I am always looking for how do our team members take that sort of approach? And it's not because there aren't lots of other styles or how they can do it. But for most people in my position or really any leadership position, you're not just looking to see if the leaders are leading well, you're looking for who's going to lead next or who's ready to move on into another direction. But you can almost only analyze that in many ways through your own lens of leadership and what matters. It's the easiest to identify, let's say. So I'm constantly looking for people that I think are directionally accurate. They're aligned to where we want to go and they recognize they don't have all the information. They know the direction that we should be going. They make decisions, they're comfortable making decisions, and they're focused on what would benefit either themselves, rather their customers or their fellow employees, but not necessarily themselves. Not that leadership decisions can't benefit the person making it, but realistically, real leadership that people rally behind tends to be around when you're choosing on behalf of your employees or your coworkers or the end customer. And so those sort of pieces of the puzzle are critical to look for. And I'm always looking for it because I love when we elevate someone from within to another level. And I've seen them exhibit those traits is a key to me that they are not only on the right track, but I'm thrilled to be on that track with them. It's certainly great when you can promote from within and certainly people are ambitious and would like to advance within the organization, says good things about the culture when that can happen. So those are three things that probably would be valuable for any of us to be thinking about, particularly people who are trying to get to that next level of their career. We'd like to talk about digital transformation for a little bit and recognizing that the term digital transformation is so subjective. It means so many different things to so many different people. Talk a little bit about what it means to you and also about what you're seeing in terms of the qualities that you're going to be looking for in people to help bring about that transformation moving forward. I think fundamentally digital transformation is different by role, by company, by what you're seeking to access. But the definition is that you're now using technology in a way that you had not prior. But even that, I think, is a terrible definition because that could be using an electric toothbrush. The whole point behind digital transformation, when I think about it and how it should be prioritized, is digital transformation is a really lengthy, multisyllabic word that just has to do with saving time. In other words, curbside pickup 
is digital transformation for restaurants. Remember when we used to wait in the drive-through or God forbid you walked inside and waited in line? Curbside pickup, you pull up, it's right there because you used an app to get it ready. That's what digital transformation is. And so for most companies and most businesses, rethinking how you do things with a digital transformation mind, if that sounds too complicated and you're thinking MarTech stack and CDPs and backend CRM system, that's not what it's about. It's what can you do with technology that will save your customer's time and or save your employee's time. That's it. It's really pretty simple. If I can do something with technology that saves time, because time is the one fundamental human asset that we all understand. It's the thing that people are hyper also aware of given the pandemic, where maybe you don't have an hour commute on both sides of the train nowadays going to and from work. Like people are focused on their time and digital transformation tends to be really be about that. So when we ask people, what would you do to digitally transform your business? We try to get them to prioritize on things that are going to help the employees and the customers. There's actually, quite frankly, a lot of things you could do just to help your employees and a lot of things you could do just to help your customers. But when you can do something that can affect both, that should be your top priority. That's another reason why I love being in search. There's almost no scenario where an employee seeking a question about what to do next shouldn't be using search. And then there's really no scenario where a customer doesn't start with search and ask a question about your business. So how can we leverage that type of technology? And there's several of them, but that's what we think of when we think digital transformation. It's great. One of the things I love about what you've said is the focus on time. I mean, because that is something I think we all feel pressure around time. And when we can find something, if it's a hack or a shortcut or something that saves us time, it can be invaluable. And like you said, with the pandemic, the commute is gone for most of us, at least for now, and that's newfound time. How do we employ it? The other thing on search, boy, there's nothing worse than a uh, ineffective search engine. It's going to be frustrating trying to find things. That's a great mindset for all of us to be thinking about too. What can we do to save ourselves, our team members, our customers time through anything that we're doing? And you happen to be talking about leveraging technology to do that. So that's a great insight. I think for many of us, the last you know, 12 to 17 months, depending on where you were and sort of how this rolled out for you, it's a shared trauma. I think people are understanding it and in different ways, but that focus on time so far, I feel is pretty universally understood. It was understood before, but we get very absent-minded about how important time is in our day-to-day grind. And the pandemic sort of force stop that in a major, major way that other tragedies and other events in the past maybe didn't for nearly as long. And so when you think about people being aware of time and that it is their most precious asset in the end, we only get so much, showing empathy or understanding to people that maybe they want to commute in, maybe they don't, maybe they want to access. Most people that are talking about the future workplace, it's really about access to knowledge and also access to the time of other individuals or information where the hallway walk back from the meeting is where the decision is made, things like that. And they're worried about those things. And the reality is we can't quite change the amazing shared experiences that we have in a room together. I don't think we're there yet. We don't have the Oasis despite Ready Player One. It's close, but we're not there, right? So until we're there, how do we optimize this? We have to recognize that we have to give time and we have to accelerate people's access to time. And technology can be a wonderful way to do that. Christian, when you think about your own personal improvement, you've developed so much. You talked about different things you've learned along the way. What are some of the things that you do to continue to build your skills? You continue to sharpen your sauce, so to speak. 
I will tell you one thing I am continuing to get better at, but I've made great strides in my personal life in the last several years is I didn't really take the time to learn how I learned, which is crazy because I'm married to a pediatric occupational therapist who literally her job is to help understand how children learn. But the reality is I don't think many of us really focus on that. What I've learned in the last several years is I am an audiographic learner. I learn by hearing. And then I got introduced to Audible and podcasts. And it changed me from five books a year that I would struggle to get through to 50 books a year. And the enjoyment level and the access and the life hacks of it, I've learned that if there's a topic that interests me, I can listen at two or three times speed, but you can also take notes while you're listening and apply the Feynman sort of theory of how you learn in a really magical way digitally. And I would say to anybody listening, I think our ability to continue to learn is one of the most precious elements and our ability to adapt comes from learning. So if adaptability has been shown to be one of the hallmarks of success and learning is the key to unlocking that, learning how you learn, even going to a specialist to help you understand how you ingest and you process, is probably one of the best things I should have done 20 years ago, but really didn't. That's a critical thing that, yes, technology can help, but it's also just making time for yourself to invest in what helps you process and retain knowledge. How did you realize how you learn? Where did you get that insight? Did you go to somebody to help you realize that? Did it just kind of click? It's a series of many things. First, I definitely was brought up in the sort of household of it's not what you think, it's how you think. And I would credit both my father and my mother with a very particular style of educating us. In terms of actually ingesting knowledge, I struggled for the next 27 years with reading very slowly. What started to happen was I would say it sort of dawned on me once or twice when I would watch a video or I would see something like a documentary on YouTube very early on, you could start playing something at one and a half or two times speed. That sort of process really changed for me. And I started getting into a little bit, well, maybe if I used Audible and how can I hook up it so I can take notes and use you know, things like Arome Research tied with Audible, tied with Apple Notes. You piece these things together into these hacks, but I would say there wasn't an aha. It's been this sort of progression of exposure to things and realizing, wow, I remember things so much better if I process it through my auditory and then go back and restate it. And then you find out there's people like Richard Feynman who are saying, yeah, yeah, that's how you do it. You know, like there's, there's this entire process. So there are certain books that really changed the way I thought about it. Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman absolutely changed the way I thought about the entire process. Pitch Anything, which is another great book about framing arguments and discussing them. All of these concepts flow through. There are people far brighter than me that have gone through this process and they leave sort of a trail for you to find. It's just, you have to take the time to find it. And over the years, I've made enough time to where I'm really starting to get at a pace that I think is appropriate to my capability. It's great that you have and that you do. And certainly what I'm taking away from this also is just a reminder that you know we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are people out there who've learned and written and provided incredible insights. And why not learn from those people in whatever way will resonate with us the most, whether it's reading it, listening to it, watching it, whatever the case might be. Personally, Audible has been a game changer for me too. I like to run. I listen to books. I go through books all the time, just yes. listening to books. And sometimes I'll even have the same book on Kindle, right? If I really want it, I'm going to have a hardcover just to have them in different places. This has been a fantastic interview, Christian. Certainly your insights have been extraordinarily valuable. Anything else you'd want to share with our listeners today? 
first off, I want to thank you again. It's been a pleasure. I would say in terms of where you're headed and what you're trying to achieve, the really simple principles of directional accuracy and focusing on your decision-making for the benefit of others has been one of the easiest paths forward. I think it's very hard today and it's getting harder every day to say you have all the right information to make the best decisions or to lead in the proper way. That said, if you have humility enough to look at every decision and understand you did the best you could and there will be mistakes and you will learn from those mistakes, that is the secret, I think, to moving forward and adapting to an environment that's changing faster than it ever has in the past. So for me, that process is ongoing and I'm excited to keep going and I wish the best to all of your audience in their journey. Awesome. Fantastic, Christian. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciated getting to know you and having you share these thoughts and look forward to seeing you again. Thank you, Joe. Great to be here. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us at the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.